Hello, I'm Jan Fran and welcome to The Briefing. It is the latest news headlines to your headphones this Wednesday, 14th of October, and I am joined by Jamila Rizvi. Hello, Jam. Hi, thanks for clarifying that because I genuinely do not know what day it is anymore. <laughs> uh, Jan, it is easy to feel like we're the first ones to go through this pandemic, this bizarre time. But there are Australians, of course, who've lived through difficult periods before and they've survived. So today on The Briefing, Australians in their 80s who've lived through the Second World War, the Great Depression and even tuberculosis share their wisdom and reassurance with us. I think the the main thing I would say is that we need to live together. If our life is enhanced in some ways, Maybe we can share some of that with somebody else. All right, those hot tips on how to get through difficult times coming up in just a sec for you. Before that, though, let's get to the big stories of the day. The Trans-Tasman bubble. God, it is a phrase that we've heard a lot of times these last few months. But look, this Friday... A version of it is finally happening. Yeah, a version of it. <laughs> we won't be able to actually go there yet. It's more of a one-way bubble, at least to begin with. But from Friday, Kiwis can fly into New South Wales and the Northern Territory without quarantining for two weeks. And Trade Minister Simon Birmingham has told us that he's got high hopes another state will sign up to the agreement soon. Hopefully uh, we'll see SA follow suit uh, with NT in New South Wales. Uh, they are the most open jurisdiction to one another alongside the ACT in Australia at present. Um, and then we'll just have to see where, uh, where Queensland and Tasmania go from there. Yeah, we also asked Simon Birmingham the most important question, when can we go there? We hope that can occur before the end of this year because doing so would be a great boom for our tourism and travel industry. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Scott Morrison used his visit to Queensland yesterday to put pressure on the Sunshine State. If uh, Queensland doesn't want to apply two weeks quarantine on Kiwis coming into Queensland, they'd be able to benefit from it as well. Yeah, Scott Morrison there definitely wants those borders to open. And look, I think this works out better for New Zealanders over here. They don't have to quarantine, as we said, in New South Wales and the NT. However, they will have to quarantine upon return to New Zealand, and that might cost them up to 3000 New Zealand dollars as well. So they might be thinking twice before coming here just because of what it might feel like on the return home. And things are feeling just a little bit more optimistic, aren't they, Jan? Because we've got the PM and the Foreign Minister now having high-level talks with leaders from Japan, South Korea, Singapore. Maybe international travel isn't just a relic of the past. And US President Donald Trump has danced his way back onto the campaign trail, holding his first campaign rally since contracting COVID-19 less than two weeks ago. I went through it. Now they say I'm immune. I can feel, I feel so powerful. There I'll kiss everyone in that audience. I'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women. I, I just, I don't, Ugh. I don't know what to say to that. Um, his doctor, though, has now confirmed that Trump has tested negative to the virus. Um, Trump has since been promising those kisses um, to what is expected to be a big audience in the state of Florida. Um, which, of course, has a large older population. Seniors, a lot of seniors in Florida, they are the most vulnerable to COVID-19. Um, it's the virus that has now killed 
215,000 Americans. And the polls, Jan, if you trust them, those pesky polls, have Trump lagging behind Democratic candidate Joe Biden in the state of Florida. So if Trump loses that state in 20 days' time, it'll be pretty much impossible for him to return to the Oval Office. And in the meantime, Jan, the government's top infectious diseases specialist, Dr Anthony Fauci, he's been saying that big rallies like this are just asking for trouble and that America is already going to be in a whole lot of trouble as it's moving into winter while we're yeah. moving into summer. They're moving into winter and their infection rate has climbed back up again to 50,000 cases a day already. And still talking COVID, but here in Australia and New South Wales has recorded more daily cases than Victoria, 13 cases to 12. The key difference is that only seven of the New South Wales cases were community transmission and six were recorded in hotel quarantine, whereas all of Victoria's cases were spreading in the community. This all comes back as Melbourne's wait to hear what freedoms we're going to get on Sunday. And the Sydney-Melbourne rivalry continues somewhat in the worst possible way, really. Our premiers of both states are facing or have faced no confidence votes in the space of just two days. Who's got less confidence in their premier? Jan, <laughs> I've got my nerd cap firmly fitted on my head right now to tell you what a no confidence vote is. Please. It's a motion usually brought by the opposition saying the lower house has lost faith in their government. So the House then votes on the motion and if it's passed, the convention dictates the government should either resign or go to an election. So it's quite a big deal. Yeah, well, the Premier Dan Andrews, he survived that vote yesterday after his Chief of Staff resigned again in connection with the bungled hotel quarantine scheme. Um, today, of course, New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian, she will face her own no-confidence vote after revelations of a secret five-year relationship with a former MP who is facing corruption allegations. Today, the former MP in question, Daryl Maguire, will front the Independent Commission Against Corruption, Jan. Yes, it's been a very big week for the New South Wales Premier and certainly it will continue to be today and tomorrow. Uh, meanwhile, in Victoria, a poll has shown, this one's an interesting poll, that the vast majority of Melbournians of Victorians want the five kilometre travel limit scrapped. 75% say they want that travel limit scrapped. What's interesting is that that is up from 9%, so a huge jump, just two weeks ago, which says to me that Victorians, I think, might be tiring, especially in the last two weeks of some of the restrictions that they're living under. Are you feeling that at the moment, Jam? Absolutely and more. I think if you took that poll again in another few days, it would be higher still. I know just amongst talking to my friends and neighbours that there's been something about this last week as we close in on that date where we were hoping to move out of stage four and we know it's not going to happen. Mm. We're just exhausted. I, I, I think it's hard to describe how hard Victorians have worked and how hard we've had it. And it feels like we've had all this success, but it's just not good enough. All right, that is it from me. Um, Jamila, you're sticking around. You'll be joined by Annika up next. As we speak, people living in Melbourne have been in either stage three or stage four lockdown for just shy of 150 days. The rest of the country continues to feel uneasy on public transport. We wear masks at supermarkets 
and international travel feels like a relic of the past. If you told me last year that the bulk of 2020 would see me staying inside, never leaving a five kilometre radius of my house, that the malls would be closed, the restaurants, the playgrounds, and that I wouldn't fly on a plane for most of the year, I, I just would never have believed you. Do not travel abroad. Queensland is tonight closed. Western Australia has officially closed its borders. Limits on nearly every aspect of life. Tough new lockdown measures. Pubs, clubs and cinemas closed. Stage four restrictions in Greater Melbourne. You can't travel more than five kilometres from your home. Residents ordered to stay indoors under the curfew. It's easier to feel like we're the first ones to go through this, that these sort of deprivations and the constant state of underlying anxiety is unique to our generation. But while this is a once-in-a-generation pandemic, Australians have lived through difficult times before and survived. And some of them are still alive today to tell us about it. I've spent much of lockdown, along with some of my colleagues, speaking with women aged mostly in their 80s and 90s. And together we've written a book called Untold Resilience. The individuals whose stories are in the book have all lived through pandemics, recessions or even depressions, and moments of global upheaval before. And like Annika says, they've all survived. So today we thought we'd give you a taste of their wisdom and experience, starting with 86-year-old Dorothy McRae McMahon, who lives in Melbourne. Dorothy, as a kid, how much did you know about what was going on in the world? I think of kids that are growing up now during this pandemic what sort of ex what was the experience like growing up in those times? Oh well, it was very hard um, during the war for a start. I know, you know, sitting in school at that stage, I had just started school then. You'd you'd hear alarms go off, and we'd all have to stand up and walk out and go and sit in trenches in the school grounds and sit there with rubber between our our lips in, in case our teeth got broken because we were so shocked by bombs or something like that and uh, those sort of things went on considerably as well as having all the food rationing and uh, yes, yeah, just sort of awareness of terrible stress all over the world or it felt like all over the world at that stage. Dorothy, do you think those early experiences shaped the person you became? I ask that because I've got a little kid now, you know, just starting school kind of age, and I, I wonder how this terrifying period and the kind of uh, conversations he's overhearing from adults, how that's going to shape him moving forward. Oh, I think it does definitely shape you moving forward as a child because, you know, children, we attempt to protect children from oh, just awful things happening and uh, fear and all those things. We we try not to tell them about things like that um, often when we're parents and so that they have a chance just to relax growing up and enjoy life as little children and so on. Um, but when you have um, these these stressful things, like the coronavirus, for example, as well as the war, children can't help but hear about them because they're affected by them. They, you know, they've they're told to do this or that, wear their masks or just keep back from people and so on. And um, it's almost as though they grow up too fast and they're facing into uh, things mm. that you'd normally expect adults to do. Dorothy, how scarce were the basics during the Depression? How, how, do you, how did your family get by? 
we had barely enough to eat. In fact, we didn't really have enough to eat. We were all very thin and, uh, you know, we sort of ate eggs. We had always had chooks and ate eggs um, rather than meat and um, grew vegetables in the back garden. But um, we were hungry um, a lot of the time and didn't have anything like the food that other children had for lunch at school and we only had one penny a week pocket money whereas the other children had two shillings and things like that and also clothes in particular I was always embarrassed by what I wore because my mother well first she wasn't interested in how she looked anyway but um, or therefore how we looked but we'd wear secondhand clothes from our aunts and things like that they didn't look like any other girls and uh, you just felt embarrassed and uh, yes it, it did affect um, our lives a lot and also our confidence in many ways. But uh, it, ta- it taught us to struggle, but, uh, but it made life hard for us and, and, and we recognised um, what other people were going through too. Obviously a lot of people are also struggling now, not quite perhaps to the depths that you explained there, but that doesn't mean we can't learn things from that time. So what advice would you give to people who have perhaps lost work or you know, aren't living to the same standards they were before we went into this pandemic? Uh, Perhaps this is the first time they have struggled. Uh, the things, there are things you learn. Um, well, you learn that there are a lot of people in desperate need, um, but you also, I learned this when I was the minister of the Pitt Street Church in the centre of the city. I had a very wise um, colleague who was retired, but he was a member of our church, and he taught me that you don't make people dependent on you if you can help it. You try and find ways through to enhance their ways of living so that they can gradually, gradually become independent and um, have enough to eat and and places to live and so on. I mean, it's not easy to do, but even so, I felt he, I learned that he was right in not just creating dependencies. The reason he said that uh, was because he said it takes life from them if you create dependencies. They, they don't really develop true whole life. What would you say to people who are trying to build their courage or perhaps their resilience during this period, who are who are recognising that there are going to be really even tougher times ahead? What advice would you have having lived through all the ups and downs of your own life? I think the, the main thing I would say is that we need to live together. I mean, I know you see these little signs all over the place that we're together sort of thing, um, but I don't know how much we really are together in terms of sharing things with each other, sharing feelings with each other, quite apart from sharing activities and, um, you know, if we come, if our life is enhanced in some ways, maybe we can share some of that with somebody else. Wise words there, Dorothy. We can all take something from that, I think, during these difficult times. Thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. Oh, I'm honoured, absolutely honoured, indeed. Annika, someone else who has lived and worked through a pandemic before is 86-year-old Val Riley. Val was a nursing assistant during the tuberculosis pandemic in the 1950s, and she joins us now. Obviously, a lot of people are very worried about the virus now. They're Mm. scared to go out or or travel. What was the fear of tuberculosis like in the general community? Were people worried about getting it? Look, when I was a small child, it was one of those things that was very shameful. 
you know, it was called consumption. And if anybody in the family had it, it was a deep, dark secret. And I'm not aware of the figures and how they rose because I was a child and not taking much notice of the, the news. But it must have grown to be a co big concern because the government decided that they needed to eliminate it. And they instituted this program of compulsory chest X-rays. And so anybody, I think, over 14 had to have a, a chest X-ray. And if the illness was detected in your lungs, then there was compulsory treatment. And so there were tuberculosis um, sanatoriums built. Val, and has the current pandemic reminded you of, of those times at all? Can you tell us about some of the similarities maybe and probably some of the many differences? Well, I think the separations from families, you know, once you were in a facility, a, a sanatorium, you didn't get to see your family except very occasionally on visiting days and under very strict conditions. So that separation, that isolation was very strong. Val, you grew up in the in country Australia during the Great Depression. Can you tell us what you remember about rations and and what it was like, <laughs> sort of having having to go go without? And we keep being told at the moment we're all in this together. Did you feel like you were all in it together? Yeah. Well, being in the country, it didn't affect us nearly as badly as be, as city dwellers. I mean, we grew our own meat. We had our own milk and our own butter. So meat and butter in particular were rationed and tea was rationed. We sort of bypassed it, I suppose. We did have an arrangement with the butcher that at the beginning of, a, I think it must have been a month, we would take the family ration books down, the butcher would cut all the ration tickets out and from then on we just bought what we wanted. But I'm sure other people had much more trouble than that. And our rations weren't nearly as severe as those in Britain. I think the main thing that bothered us was um, clothing rationing. You could only buy a certain amount of clothing or of fabric to make stuff. And, you know, country kids were pretty hard on clothes. That sense <laughs> of community you talk about, uh, yes. a lot of people had, prior to the pandemic, suggested that community had broken down, especially in major cities. But we do see people banding together during this pandemic. How do you think community helps during these times? You know, is, is it something we can oh, survive by ourselves? I think community is very, very important. One of the big uh, advantages we have today is all this electronic communication so that, you know, I'm still very much in touch with the people that I used to meet with regularly, either through Zoom meetings or through regular phone calls or that kind of thing. And so, whereas it'll be lovely when we can meet face to face, I don't feel that I've lost touch with them. Spending time with Dorothy and Val genuinely has lifted me up and reassured me that eventually we are going to get through this that this too shall pass. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure hearing their stories of these unsung heroes. They're the kind of people that I guess live quiet but extraordinary lives and they can be found in every city and town. They're the people I love to interview when I'm working and doing my job. And I think their advice is going to hold us in good stead during the pretty difficult years that lie ahead. 
I hope that episode is leaving you all warm and fuzzy, folks. Tomorrow we take a look at the death of the shopping mall with Jan Fran. If you are loving the briefing, the best way to support us is to tell a friend about us. Please tell a friend. A Podcast One production.